Do you know, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been a surprising number of articles in the, in the secular press this year about the resurrection, about Easter Sunday, about the facts surrounding it. And most of them, surprisingly, again, have been, have been quite positive. I know there's, been, there's always the odd person who makes some stupid comment. Uh, one of my mates said, he don't believe all that silly stuff that he said Jesus never existed. It's like a myth or a fable. Well, it's nonsense. I mean, e- even your non-Christian historians would disagree with that. If you investigate seriously, you will see that it's true. I mean, I, I can remember years and years ago when I first became a Christian, somebody lent me a book called Who Moved the Stone by a fella called Frank Morrison, I think it was, it's an ancient book then. I think it was written in 1930. But this guy, a, not a Christian, set out to investigate the, the claims of Christianity and the claims around the resurrection to disprove them. Guess what? He became a Christian because he couldn't disprove them. There's another guy called Josh McDowell, um, a very, very brainy fella, who also did exactly the same thing. He thought, right, I'm going to disprove this nonsense about Christianity, this nonsense about somebody dying and coming back to life again. Guess what? He became a Christian. He, he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In fact, his grandson has just reissued that, that same title with some added material that he's put in himself. He's also a very brainy fella and there's another another guy called Lee Strobel who wrote a book called The Case for Christ a journalist I forget which one of the major American newspapers set out to disprove the nonsense around the Jesus story guess what he became a Christian too in fact, there's a, look out for, there's a movie with the same title as his book, The Case for Christ, which has just come out, or it's certainly been released in America, um, which apparently, I've not seen it at all, I've only seen a trailer, is a very, very good account. So, people set out to disprove that, that Jesus died and rose again, that Jesus even existed, and they couldn't do it. I thought we'd start, I'd just start this time just to run through some of the facts around the Easter story um, from what we know of documentary evidence and eyewitnesses. So let's, let's just run through. Let's look at starting on the Friday night. On the Friday night, Jesus and two criminals had been crucified, and they'd been crucified on the Jewish day of preparation for the Passover, the Passover festival, the Passover feast commemorates the exodus of the Jewish people when they were liberated from Egypt um, and you've, if, liberated from slavery. If you remember the story, if you remember the story, the, it's called the Passover because the angel of death came and literally passed over the homes where the blood of the lamb had been daubed on the doorposts. Can you see some similarity there? The blood of the lamb saved their lives. And because the Jewish authorities on that day of preparation for Passover didn't want the crucifixions to extend into the holy days, 
they sped up the executions as they often did, or the, have they had the Romans do it, certainly in the normal way of speeding up someone's execution, the, the, the horrible death that crucifixion was. Crucifixion was almost like a swear word. It was a horrible thing. They would smash the legs of the person hanging on the cross so they couldn't even take the weight of their body on, their, on the nail through their feet as well. So they would hang and die much quicker, suffocating generally. Interestingly, when the soldiers came to do the same to Jesus, they didn't, they didn't need to because he'd already died. They stuck a spear in his side just to make sure. But even that fulfilled prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. So that's the Friday night. So Jesus is dead. One of those watching the crucifixion was Joseph of Arimathea. He was a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And, and also, but he was also a secret believer. He was a secret follower of Jesus. And Joseph went to the Roman governor, Pilate, to ask for the body of Jesus to be released to him so he could bury Jesus, give him a decent burial. Usually, at times like this, there would have to be a number of executioners had to verify the death of the victim before the body could be removed from the cross. But Pilate agreed to let Joseph take the body of Jesus, so he must have been confident that Jesus was well and truly dead. Then, that body was wrapped in grave cloths, wrapped in grave cloths and, and buried in the tomb. The burial of Jesus was carried out, as, as, as I've already said, under extreme pressure of time because of the fast approaching Passover and you know, the Sabbath itself, and which began officially at dusk. So as the sun set went down, it, it, that it began. So they, the body was hurriedly prepared for burial. The washing of the body and the anointing wasn't completed as they would have liked on the Friday, and I suppose that's why the women came to the tomb early on the Sunday morning. And Joseph of Arimathea and another member of the Sanhedrin, a fellow called Nicodemus, who was also a secret believer, took the body of Jesus from the cross and placed it in Joseph's own tomb. And between them, they hurriedly wrapped the body and packed it around with spices as, as they did in them days, and the jaw would have been wrapped with a strip of cloth almost certainly the wrists and the ankles would have been of the corpse would have been bound up with strips of cloth as well as the shroud itself to keep you know just to keep the body in place so Jesus is dead he's wrapped in grave cloths he's buried then a rock was put across the entrance of the two of the tomb the average size of the entrance would have been about four and a half to five feet high to cover that would have took a stone, they reckon, weighing around two, two and a half tons. It may have been a carved stone, much like a big wheel. More likely, it would have just been a, a rough-hewn rock, which would have just been poof, shut to shut the door. So Jesus is dead. He's wrapped in grave cloths. He's buried in a tomb. A big stone is placed over the tomb. What next? A guard was placed over the entrance. The Jewish leaders were concerned about what would happen next. They'd been fearful of Jesus' powers. They didn't like him, did they? This man healed the sick. They saw him do it. 
He even raised the dead. They, they, they may have even wondered whether it was possible to stop him, let alone kill him. And now that he was dead, and even then, strange things had happened when he died. If you read the accounts, the sky had gone black. It was like an eclipse or something for hours. The curtain of the temple, the, 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 the curtain that separated the most holy place from the outside world, was torn from top to bottom as he died. <coughs> and then there have been reports of actual tombs breaking open and dead people coming back to life again. And this is not normal. Right? And, 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 and the authorities, the Jewish leaders and the authorities would have been aware of all this stuff. This must have been scary for them. So they placed a Roman guard outside the tomb. A Roman guard consists of 16 Men, 16 men standing in a square, trained Roman soldiers, four on each side facing out, were expected to defend themselves against a whole battalion. These were trained soldiers, trained fighting men on guard outside the tomb. So, the scene is set. Jesus is dead. He is wrapped in grave cloths. He is buried in a solid rock tomb. The tomb has a two-ton rock across the entrance. The tomb is protected by Roman guards. And there's one other thing. There was a seal placed across the tomb. The tomb was ordered to be sealed. It would have probably been like a big cord stretched across the rock, fastened at either end with some sort of sealing clay. Finally, the clay packs would have been stamped with the insignia of the Roman governor. That seal protected the tomb with the full authority of the Roman Empire. Anyone trying to tamper with that stone to break the seal would have been answerable to Roman law. So there it is. Jesus, dead and buried. All the hopes of the people who followed him dashed. Oh, Sunday morning. On the Sunday morning, things changed, right? So the seal was broken. That would have made the full forces of the Roman Empire spring into action. Whoever broke that seal would have been hunted down and executed, traditionally by, by crucifixion upside down, right? The seal was broken. The guard had fled. Those seasoned soldiers who were trained to fight against the whole battalion were nowhere to be seen. Why would Roman soldiers do that? Only if they'd encountered a force far greater and far stronger than them. Right? That stone, that two-ton stone had been moved away from the entrance. Eyewitnesses some hostile as, as, and, and some sympathetic, state that the rock which had covered the entrance to the tomb had been moved aside. All the gospel writers state that the stone which covered the tomb was of some considerable weight and size. Certainly when those women went early that Sunday morning with the spices to, to prepare the body properly, they must have wondered who was going to help them to move the stone. How are we going to move the stone? We've got to get to Jesus. The stone was moved. The tomb was empty. There was no corpse in there. There was no body to be found. That's a fact that all sides agree on. And what about the grave cloths? 
although there was no corpse in that stone tomb, there was still something. The cloths that had wrapped the body of Jesus were still there. Now that raises serious doubts about the theory that someone had stolen the body, right? Because you just imagine this, right? You're a grave robber, right? You, 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 get, in, you get past the seal, you kill, you kill the guards, you move the stone, you get in, you grab the body, you think, come, let's go. No, no, we're not going to go. Let's unwrap the grave cloths first, right? And, not only, and if you read the account, it says that the cloth that was around his head was neatly folded and left on that stone shelf. Would a grave robber do that? So they could run through, this ta- run through Jerusalem with a naked corpse over their shoulder. I don't think so, right? What else happened? He appears to other people after he's dead, right? Because he's alive. Josh McDowell, in that book I referred to, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he says this, listen very carefully. He said, when studying an event in history, it's important to investigate whether enough people who were participants or eyewitnesses to the event were still alive when the facts were published. If the number is substantial, the event can be fairly well established. He's just looking at the thing objectively. He's saying, if there's enough people around who saw it happen, who can challenge, when it, challenge the writings about it, or can confirm the writings about it, then it pretty much happened. One of the earliest records of Jesus appearing after the resurrection was to 500 people at one time, as well as to the disciples, to his friends, to the ones who were devastated by his death. And they saw him alive. A well-known early 20th century preacher by the name of Campbell Morgan, he said this, The resurrection is the most stupendous supernatural miracle that the world has ever known. It supersedes everything else because if he is not risen from the dead, then everything else collapses. Echoing the words the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says this, He says, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Some people are very upset about the resurrection, but it is key to our faith in Christ Jesus. Essential 
Loads of things have been said about it. You know, social media is not a, the best place to be educated, but there's some stupid things been said on there over this last week or so. Some people saying that Jesus never died. Some people saying, you know, he must have just fainted away, swooned. Um, you know, he'd been up all night and he'd been pushed around a bit and he'd lost some blood. But thankfully, in the cool of that tomb, he was revived and uh, moved that stone away and walked through the garden, went home, and it was all all right. Can you see the nonsense of it? When you look at the evidence, the evidence says, yes, he was dead, and yes, he was alive again. Right? (coughs) The actions of the apostles support that, right? Because those early followers of Jesus... They support the argument that Jesus was dead and, and raised to life again because it wasn't easy for them, was it? To go, I mean, it would have been much easier for them to say, look, we followed Jesus, we loved him, we saw, you saw the miracles and the teaching was fantastic, weren't it? But, you know, I know he's dead now, so sorry, we made a mistake. And you back out of the temple quietly, don't you? They didn't do that. They literally put their life on the line. Many of them giving up their life for this. Was it a lie or was it a fantastic truth? He's alive again. I'm going to tell people. I'm going to go preaching. I'm, I'm off. It may take a persecution to scatter me from Jerusalem to go somewhere else, but I'm going somewhere else to tell them. Jesus is alive. They knew that Jesus had come back from the dead. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, he says, he appeared to the apostles and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Listen, if it was a made-up story, as some people say, why did those men give up their lives, many of them? Why did they put their lives in danger on a daily basis? Because he showed himself to be alive. Jesus appeared through his time on earth in lots of different ways. He first appeared as a baby, a little baby. God appeared as a little baby at Christmas time. Later, he was seen as a great preacher. Like I said, they were amazed at his preaching because he taught as one who had authority. He appeared as a miracle worker. Healing the sick, walking on the surface of the lake, calming the storm. Imagine that, telling the weather to calm down. And it worked. All the stuff he did, feeding the 5,000, he was a miracle worker. He appeared as a lowly servant. To their embarrassment, his followers... One day he took a towel and wrapped it round his waist and he got a bowl of water and he knelt at their feet and washed their dirty feet for them. The task of the lowest of slaves. Jesus did that. And then on that fateful day, he appeared as a disgraced criminal on the cross. But we know that he was a sacrificial lamb. We know that without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sin. Because we know bits of the Bible, don't we? We know that he defeated sin and death for us. What about his followers? Do you think, do you think Peter ever forgot that moment when Jesus just deliberately and intentionally showed him so much compassion. Peter, who had denied even knowing Jesus three times. Do you remember that? When he was arrested? You're one of Jesus' mates. No, I ain't. You were with him. You're from... No, not me. Three times he said, no, nothing to do with me. And then when Jesus came back from the dead, he says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. That was, he, didn't, he didn't have a load of sheep. He was talking figuratively. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Yes, Peter was hurt that Jesus had asked the question a third time. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Would he forget that from the risen Lord Jesus? I don't think so. And Thomas, do you remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas, he's called. That, do you think he'd ever forget that moment that Jesus came to him? Thomas, who said, oh, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. He'd seen him nailed to a cross. He'd seen the spear thrust in. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The disciples had already seen Jesus alive. This time, Thomas was there as well. The, door, the doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless anymore. Believe. And I love what Thomas said in response to that. My Lord and my God, he said to Jesus. Those were wonderful appearances because he is risen. And do you know what? He'll appear to you too. And if you don't know Jesus here today, I think you've had a little glimpse of him in this room. But he'll appear to you. He'll appear in different ways. He'll appear in a way that you need him, that you, would, that you can see him. Sometimes he comes with real tenderness and compassion. But how did Peter feel after denying Jesus three times? How would he have felt after that? And yet Jesus comes to him and says just what he needs to hear. Three times you denied me. Three times I'm going to say, I love you. I love you. I love you. What's he going to say to you? Maybe you're broken. Maybe you're physically broken. Maybe you're emotionally wounded. Jesus says, I want to bind up your broken heart. I'll mend you 
physically. I'll mend you emotionally because I'm alive. Sometimes he'll come and it'll be a little bit painful because he'll stab your conscience. He might pierce your heart at the same time. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Think, oh, no. He's just told me how bad that really is. How wrong that really is. That hurts, don't it? But then he says, listen, but I love you enough to forgive you. I love you enough to change your life. I love you enough to take you who were you're nothing, really, and I'll make you a somebody in the kingdom of God. That's what the risen Lord Jesus does. Sometimes he comes with such overwhelming glory and majesty that you just have to fall at his feet in adoration. And it might even be a bit embarrassing, but actually you don't care because he's so wonderful. And you know what? He's still doing it today. We still see lives change today, don't we? There's a room full of people in, in Bermondsey, in London in 2017 who, who, who love Jesus Maybe some of you don't, but you can. So many proofs of his resurrection. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be baptizing some people. What does that say? It says people today believe this stuff and have surrendered their life to him and accepted his forgiveness and love. It's still happening, isn't it? Because of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Listen, Jesus is alive. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Let's give him a fantastic round of applause as the musicians come to the stage.